0: HBO's Insecure just launched its fifth and final season.
1: I just want to fast forward to the part of my life when everything's okay. If you knew the end was coming, how would you make the most of your time left?
0: Created by and starring Issa Rae, Insecure follows a friend group of Black millennial women in LA. How would you want to be remembered?
2: Don't act like I'm
3: asking.
0: The show with its majority black cast is incredibly popular among a racially diverse audience.
3: Having a show with an all-minority cast is of interest to not just black people, but of interest to other audiences as well.
0: I'm Sarah McConnell, and today, a look at women breaking stereotypes on screen. In the 20-teens, there was a mini-spike of TV shows featuring black women protagonists. Dr. Morgan Smalls is a professor at James Madison University in the School of Media Arts and Design. She takes a closer look at two shows, Insecure and Being Mary Jane, and the conversations they've inspired among fans. A note to listeners, this interview acknowledges the existence of sex. Morgan, what is it about those two shows, Insecure and Being Mary Jane, that's inspired such a fan base online and social media?
3: That's a great question. The shows are really interesting because they came about at a time where there was an increase in Black women in leading roles in television. You had Scandal, which came out, I believe, around April of 2012. Being Mary Jane came out around 2013. We also had How to Get Away with Murder in 2014, Empire in 2015, and Insecure in 2016. Insecure and Being Mary Jane were particularly fascinating to me because they not only had an increase in Black women or minority women just in the cast in general, but they also were being led by Black women as well. Being Mary Jane is created by Mara Brock Akil, along with her husband. It's talking about a successful um, 30-plus-year-old African-American woman, but it also was on a show or on a network that was catered to that particular audience, right? And with Insecure, Insecure was created by Jo Issa Rae Diop. That's her full name. She was really fascinating because she began with a YouTube series. And that was called The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl. She was able to parlay that into a deal with HBO for Insecure, which was almost building from this idea of The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl.
0: Tell me about Insecure. She stars in it.
3: Yes, she definitely is the star and the creator. She has four friends, four all-black women, all of different hues and sizes and... Shapes, but they're all millennials in, in different facets of their career. She is in transition. She is questioning a lot about her life. And so through the show, we see this evolution of her character. And I think it would be great if we're able to show a little clip from the first season and first episodes. And it's one of the first few Moments, And we will meet Issa, and we will see she is at her job. Um, We got y'all, and she's at a school talking about the programs that they have.
1: As youth liaison, I can assure you that whatever it is you need to succeed, we got y'all. So do y'all have any questions? Don't be shy, guys. Fire away. Why you talk
3: like a white girl? Uh, You caught me, I'm rocking
1: blackface. (laughs) Any other questions? What's up with your hair? I don't
4: know what you mean.
1: My cousin can put some tracks in it, unless you like it like that.
3: You rule, she African.
4: (laughs) We're all from Africa, guys. Absolutely. Let's stick to questions about the program.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, she does such a great job of being vulnerable and funny in that. Yes, especially when they're asking very invasive questions that have nothing to do with why she's there. But she's saying, okay, if this is what you're interested in, I wear my hair like this in its natural state on purpose. So no, I do not want to manipulate it. And no, I do not talk like a white girl, as you assume. This is my natural voice, right? (laughs) And so... These ideas are things that I think a lot of uh, Black women face, right? The idea of what is appropriate for your hair, right? Is natural hair important? We've seen these recent laws being passed just to protect Black women's hair or the ability for them to wear their hair the way they desire in the workplace. That's also an aspect that is really relatable.
0: I thought it was really funny and poignant that she works for a place called We Got Y'all. It just seemed to epitomize this do-gooder nonprofit run by white people uh-huh. where she has to sort of perform in that atmosphere all the time. And yet, what a, what a title, right?
3: We Got Y'all is the name of the company. Exactly. The idea that We Got Y'all, yet she is experiencing microaggressions in the workplace like she is the only black person. There's other people of color there, but I believe she's the only black woman there, right? How in various times throughout the seasons, we see her being considered the voice of black people, whether she wants to be that or not. And so in some of my research, that was a conversation that came up, the idea of tokenism, right, in the workplace, the idea of facing these microaggressions, the idea of she's being undervalued in the workplace,
0: In your research, were you primarily looking at Black women fans of the show talking to each other on Twitter?
3: For Insecure, I was more so looking at Facebook. What were you noticing? Um, Some themes that came up were really interesting, like they were talking about tokenism and the unhealthy work environments, But there was also a, a conversation about Black women's relationships and not necessarily just friendships, but her actual relationships, because through the seasons we see you know, she has Lawrence that she begins with, and then we see her with Nathan, and we see her with a couple of other people. But this idea of the gender double standard, right, this this lingering question of, is Issa what they were calling a hoe? Because like, even Lawrence called her that name, that derogatory name in the show. And she wonders it about herself. yes. So the audience was more so focused on if Issa is going to be labeled that way, then Lauren should be labeled that way or other people should be labeled that way as well.
0: And just to be clear, she's both free and enjoys sex, loves men, Mm -hmm. but then doubts herself and gets doubted by her own friends and boyfriends.
3: Yes, she definitely questions her actions, her behaviors, and her friends. And there's particularly a scene with Kelly Um, where she finds out that Issa is living with Daniel for free. Let's play that clip. My girl, come on. I've been working a full-time job. I've been lifting. What else can I do? (sighs) Look, long term, I could set you up with a credit counselor here, and I will help you plan out a budget. But right now, you don't have enough money to move out
1: on your own. Kelly, I gotta do something. I told Daniel I'd only be staying there a few weeks and I don't want to take advantage of that.
3: Well, if it would make you feel better, then you could throw him a few extra bucks.
1: Oh yeah, he's not, he's not charging me this
3: time. I'm sorry, what?
1: He's not charging me this time.
3: He not? you buying What? Kelly, no. Not even a little bit. She is not where she wants to be. Not personally, not professionally, not financially. And she seems to be in this rut where she, or a hole that she is trying to dig herself out of, but it's so hard.
0: How do you think women are relating to it, who are fans of the show?
3: Well, there was a lot of people talking about their relatability to her character. There was a huge conversation about women saying, hey, I'm no longer in Issa's place now, but I remember that time. I remember being yeah. broke. I remember, some people even said, I remember working at a nonprofit. I remember being the only black person in my workplace.
0: Let's listen to a clip from another program that actually came out a little before Insecure. Mm-hmm. This one is Being Mary Jane. And the clip I want to play is one where she is furious with a man she's been dating because she just found out he's married. Oh, Here yes. We go. Are
3: you crazy? No, I'm not. Every, no, no, no. Every time we kissed. Every time we made love. Every promise you made me. It was real. No, it's
4: not. It's real. No, it's not.
3: Yes. The drama, right? The drama. The character, Mary Jane Paul, is a, at that point a 38-year-old. Um, she's fashionable. She's attractive. She's a successful news anchor in Atlanta, Georgia, right? And she wants to be just as successful in her personal life as she is in her professional life. And with this one clip, we see how she is having problems in her personal life. Um, Big problems. Huge problems because she is dating someone. They have been dating um, about four or five months and she thinks everything is going well. He comes to her house um drunk one evening and she finds his wedding ring. Before that she didn't know he was married or or anything like that. She was unaware. But ultimately though, in the messiness of this at the end of that episode, she ends up having sex with him. And so it's complicated. It's very complicated, right? And so in the Twitter sphere, that sparked a huge conversation. Um because it was wait a minute. Mary Jane, you're supposed to know better. What are you doing? Um, why are you doing this? They, they said, and I'll, I'll read a quote. Um, one person said, Mary Jane is, um, they called her a whore. They said she just broke up a happy home, right? They called her a wrecker. They said that she was uh, behaving in a very um, shameful way. Right. And so there was a lot of um, comments that likened her to a modern day Jezebel in that particular episode.
0: Let me play another scene from Being Married Jane and get your reaction to this. Awesome.
4: I have a niece that wants to do porn. Porn. Niece, are you pregnant again? Huh? You
3: tripping. What's the matter with you? What's the matter with me? Are you kidding me? There are too many damn kids in this family and not enough people feeding them. Who's got a job? Raise your hand. Who has a job in this room? Raise them high. With that clip, that montage, we see that she seems to be one of the more successful people in her family because she's mentioning the idea of There's a lot of miles in this family and not a lot of people working. And so there's a lot of weight that she has on her shoulders and it can be very, very stressful. We notice that a lot of people go to her, not just her family, but her friends. She is the one that they call on when they're having a, a crisis, right? She's the one that will lend them money. She's the one that will bake them a cake, So she is a lot of things to a lot of different people, right, which is very relatable.
0: What do you think Being Mary Jane and Insecure do for expanding the base of programmings where people can see a much more complicated, nuanced view of these characters and their friends and family?
3: It's it's, it's multi-layered. I think for the viewers, particularly viewers of color, it allows us the opportunity to see ourselves on television, right? Right. because there still is a, a limited amount of Black actresses in leading roles and a limited amount of Black female showrunners. And a lot of times, uh, shows can reflect these stereotypical representations of African-American women. But just seeing an increase in the amount of television shows that have um, Black women at the forefront, in front of and behind the screen... Um, shows that, number one, we have an audience for that, right? Um, And can potentially open the doors for other shows that are similar. Mm -hmm. I think it shows that it can be successful and that it should be supported and that we need to continue to give voice and give space to those who are interested in telling stories where Black people in general and Black women specifically are at the forefront. And are at the center and so their conversations where they're not just at the margin they're not just the friend to the main character they're not just the the sidekick right where their stories are at the forefront and also um, recognizing that black people in general we're not a monolith right and so there's a variety of stories that have yet to be told right Dr.
0: Morgan Smalls is a professor at James Madison University in the School of Media, Arts, and Design. Disney princesses can be a bit of a scapegoat for what's wrong with representations of women in movies. And we're going to pile on one more problem with the princesses. For the most part, they don't have many healthy female relationships. Jessica Stanley is an English instructor at John Tyler Community College. She says traditional Disney is full of toxic relationships between women, but newer Disney movies are doing better. Jessica, you've found that for decades, really, of Disney princess films, they never have much in the way of female friendships. There's nobody with whom they're close and complex and supportive. Yes,
4: yes. Um, So I, I will freely admit I'm a huge Disney fan. I have been since I was very small. But in those, especially those earlier princess movies, like Snow White, really up until The Princess and the Frog, we don't get a lot of interaction between female characters. Snow White, the wicked stepmother is trying to kill Snow White. Um, in Sleeping Beauty, Maleficent places a curse on Aurora. Um, and this really continues up through Cinderella and and even farther than that. I have a clip of Cinderella with the wicked stepsisters just mm. being merciless with her.
0: Let me play that.
2: And this too, Cinderella, my slippers. Now don't forget to... Cinderella, bring... take my dress. Here, bend the buttonhole, And press my skirt too and mine the ruffle. you your own. And caring. Cinderella. Yes?
0: When you are through... And before you begin your regular chores, I have a few little things. Very well.
4: Mother, I don't see why everybody else seems to have such nice things to wear. And I always end up in these old rags. This sash. But I wouldn't be seen dead in it. You should talk. These beads. I'm sick of looking, looking them. at them. Trash.
2: Oh, I see. I oh, I don't, I don't go. see why I can't
4: have the phone. <laughs> no, yeah. to... So that is such a good example because there we've got. The stepsisters being incredibly antagonistic really to to everyone around them, to Cinderella, but even between one another. These women are set up not necessarily as allies, but in competition with one another for the best clothes, for the affections of the prince, for everything really.
0: And then even decades later, you have a movie like Little Mermaid, and she has all these sisters, Mm -hmm. but she has no relationships with any of them.
4: Right. Yeah, Ariel is in a lot of ways very much an outsider um, in her kingdom, but also within her family. We don't really see her interacting so much with her sisters on anything more than really a superficial level. The interaction that she does get with another woman is that with Ursula, and that is not great. Tell me about Ursula. Um, So Ursula is the main villain. Um, Ursula's main song in the film is called Poor Unfortunate Souls. In that song, she reminds Ariel that she doesn't need her voice to win over Prince Eric. You just need to be pretty.
0: Uh, Let me play Ursula giving that advice to the Little Mermaid here.
2: But without my voice, how can I? You'll have your looks, your pretty
0: face, and don't underestimate the importance of the body
4: language. Ha! The men up there don't like a lot of blabber. They think a girl who gossips is a bore. Yes, on land, it's much preferred for ladies not to say a word, and after all, dear, what is idle prattle for? Come on there, not all that impressed with conversation. True gentlemen avoid it when they can. But they don't swim and fawn on a lady who's withdrawn. It's she who holds her tongue who gets a man.
3: Come on, you poor unfortunate
4: soul. Respond to that. <laughs> Such <laughs> toxic advice. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I I almost don't even know where to start with that. The, the line, it's much preferred for ladies not to say a word. You know, that sort of, in my mind, illustrates a lot of the damaging ideas that can come from that earlier sort of princess culture. And that changed big time when I saw Frozen. Oh, really? Tell me about that. That was a movie that was doing something so different um, and so interesting, not only with the relationships between the two main characters, Elsa and Anna, but also just in how those characters themselves were constructed as people. They had these complex lives and ideas and flaws. The story follows two sisters, one Elsa who was born with ice magic. So from a young age, she's encouraged by her family to conceal her power. So she grows up isolating herself from her sister, from her family, from her subjects, and trying to hide who she is from everyone around her. And this, of course, falls apart. So Elsa flees the kingdom in an attempt to protect everyone else from herself. And it's up to her sister, Anna, to bring her home. Goodbye, Anna. Elsa, wait. No, I'm just trying to protect you.
1: You don't have to protect me. I'm not afraid. Please don't shut me out again. Please don't slam the door. You don't have to keep your distance anymore. For the first time in forever, I finally understand. For the first time in forever, we can fix this hand in hand. We can head down this mountain together. You don't have to live in fear. Because for the first time in forever, I will be right here. Uh-huh.
4: You know, in in some of the research that I've done, I, I recognized even some of the symptoms of like PTSD that manifest in Elsa's character, that she re-experiences through flashbacks, moments where she's hurt people that she loves, like her sister, by not being able to control her powers. Um, She locks herself away from Anna because she's afraid of hurting her again. She has these these outbursts, this sort of hyper-arousal of emotion that she can't contain because she's so afraid of herself. And that's really like that kind of struggle is not something that we often see in the princess characters. And so it makes her feel very real, very three-dimensional. And I think in many ways, probably very comforting for viewers that a character who does have struggles like that exists in the Disney canon.
0: You've also talked about Moana Mm-hmm. Tell me about the movie Moana. This is about a young girl who will be king of her island nation, but who wants to leave.
4: Yeah. So I I I love Moana just about as much as Frozen. It came out a couple of years after. Um, but that film tells the story of a young woman named Moana who is set to rule her kingdom after her father. And this kingdom has existed. They've existed on their island for many, many years without leaving. And they've survived this way because her father believes that it's it's too dangerous to leave the island. We have everything that we need here. There's no reason to leave. But a curse that has been brought about by the theft of the heart of the mother goddess Tefiti is slowly encroaching on the kingdom. And Moana makes the decision to leave to attempt to restore Te heart and hopefully save her kingdom and save the world. So eventually, um, through her journey, Moana encounters what she believes is a demon named Te Ka. But Moana realizes that what she thinks is a demon is actually Te who has been transformed by the theft of her heart. So rather than running from this danger, Moana approaches her head on and says, I recognize you. I know who you are. You don't have to let this theft, this loss define you.
1: I have crossed the whole-
4: This does not define you. I get chills every time I hear that song, because I think that the film, really, through Moana's experiences leading up to this moment, sets her up to really be the only person that can recognize Taka and what has happened here, and set it to rights. Um, she has to sort of leave the the traditional structure of her home, the structure that her father has put in place, um, in a similar way that Elsa does, and carve out something new that's really built in her experiences as a woman. So Moana draws strength from her mother and from her grandmother to complete this journey. Um, And it's her experiences as a woman that ultimately helps her to recognize what's happened to Taka and extend a hand to her.
0: This movie came out during the Me Too movement. And while it's not explicit, a lot of people saw Me Too in the movie.
4: How so? Absolutely. Um, As I was doing research for this project, I realized that a lot of other people had seen or had noticed the connections that I noticed when I watched the film, which was that the theft of To Fiti's heart is really the theft of something that is deeply personal. It's a, a physical part of her body that was taken or violated by a male character. And so a lot of women went to see this movie in the theater and then later wrote in online platforms about recognizing their own trauma with rape or with sexual assault Played out in Tafiti's narrative, there was one that really stuck with me. Where one woman said that she sat in the theater. The phrase that she used was, "I sat there, ugly crying, like just full out sobbing, because she saw her experience and she saw her trauma reflected in in a way that was ultimately respectful and uplifting." And that was huge.
0: Okay. So after all this, if you think back on the old Disney princesses, Cinderella, Snow White and such, would you let your young daughter see them if you had a young
4: daughter? Um, So I don't have kids, but I think if I did, I would. Um, I, I think that it is valuable to see where we've come from. And I think that those stories do carry value. Um, There are themes of kindness. Um, There's an inherent sense of hopefulness in many of those films that even if something really bad happens, there is hope for a better tomorrow. Um, And I I think that that is a a really valuable thing. Um, But I do think that those movies are an opportunity for families to sit down and, and watch together and talk about. What is happening on screen? Talk about the characterizations. Talk about, especially with their daughters, what kind of woman do you want to be? There's lots of different ways of of being a woman. There's no right or wrong way to do that. So, who do you want to be? (laughs) So true, Jessica
0: Stanley. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much. Jessica Stanley is an English instructor at John Tyler Community College, which is becoming Bright Point Community College. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Movies and television tell stories about who we are and who we get to be. What does that mean for people who don't find themselves on the screen? Andre Cavalcante is a media studies professor at the University of Virginia. His book, Struggling for Ordinary, explores trans representation in the media. He joins me to talk about how trans women have subverted the stories so often told about them. When you spent time in trans support groups in the Midwest, media portrayals of trans people came up a lot. Did that surprise
1: you? It did not, actually. Um, I was getting my PhD in media studies, so I knew the centrality of media uh, in our everyday lives. But what I was surprised about was the frequency with which they would bring up media content, Uh, and how they would use it. And one of the things that they would use it for was for resources, and resources not just for themselves, but for family members, uh, or for loved ones, or for friends. Somebody would say like, oh, I just read this wonderful book. You should give this to your mother who's like struggling with trying to understand what being trans is about. This would really help her. Or there was this wonderful episode, you know, on TV last night that explored trans life and Um, I I think your brother would really benefit from seeing that. Um, So I wasn't surprised with how often it came up, but I was surprised with how it wasn't just for themselves, although, of course, they themselves consumed this media, but it was also for other people in their life to sort of help them and, and teach them.
0: Tell me the story of one of the women whose experience you document very movingly, Margie.
1: I I love Margie. Um, The reason why I opened the book with Margie is because she really breaks down uh, and smashes a lot of stereotypes uh, and sort of misunderstandings we have about trans people.
0: She was from a very conservative, traditional, and loving family.
1: Yes, yes. She watched Fox News. And, you know, uh, and I found that to be particularly compelling because we tend to think of trans people as just sort of a certain kind of person. And here with Margie, we have all of these contradictions, right? She's trans, but she's also conservative. She's married to her wife that they had been together throughout her transition. And they're still together, but yet they have boyfriends. Um, At the same time, she uh, loves to spoil her grandchildren, And, you know, in two weeks she was going to, like, Miami. It's a, you know, party at a gay club, you know, (laughs) all night. So I just found this sort of... When you actually talk to real people, that's what you find.
0: And you write how, as a teenager, she knew nobody who was trans. She didn't even have a clue that she was trans until she picked up some paperback in a drugstore and read about a soldier
1: who was trans. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, So this was the Christine Jorgensen story Uh, in the 1950s. She was one of the first... um, You know, sort of global trans celebrities. Uh, And it was one of the first times that transgender really sort of hit the national public. And it became uh, what one scholar calls like a household term, right? Transsexuality became a household term because of Christine Jorgensen. There was a a movie about her life. You know, she did Broadway star, cabaret singer. Um, And so, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, Margie was just like, going to her local drugstore and found this paperback and and had this like really astonishing moment where the paperback provided her the possibility for understanding herself
0: she would read it secretly when her parents couldn't see her reading it
1: absolutely. And this is something you find um across, uh, the stories with my participants, and and in sort of trench under uh, personal histories, is like everyone sort of has this secret file that they keep uh, of movies, films, articles, books. Uh, for some of my participants, it was comics that they would read over and over and over again. Uh, and that's part of the beauty of media, right? At, especially for minorities is that you can consume it in private. You can consume it outside the watchful eye of let's say your family who might not be accepting or your friends or you know, your religious institution or your work, right? You can con- consume this stuff in private and, and really have a, a, an intimate engagement with it and learn about yourself, right? And so media is really important for minorities in general, and for trans women in particular.
0: Her wife was very understanding. They actually started watching every movie, every documentary they could get their hands on.
1: Yeah, this is great. I mean, so, you know, I did this when I was coming out as a gay man, right? I, you know, went to Blockbuster. This is when we used to have video stores and rented everything I could get. So I really related to this um, moment in her life, right, where her and her wife... Decided that they would learn about this together, right? And so, yeah, they went out and they rented every movie, every interview, every documentary. They saw it together. Um, and what Margie said is that that's what made it easier for her and her wife to talk right was that they had this thing in common right this media text or this narrative and after watching it really spurred these wonderful conversations that they were able to have with each other and it was those movies right that generated these conversations that were really helpful for both her and her wife
0: i wonder what movies and documentaries they had at their disposal can you rattle off a few
1: yeah i mean it's it's hard because at the time there really wasn't that much in terms of transgender representation that was widely available, that was complicated, you know. Um, so I don't I I don't know what they would have watched.
0: Speaking of complicated and widely available, there was some pretty crummy stuff out there. Oh yeah. In the eighties and nineties, there were depictions on some TV shows and in film. But it wasn't always supportive.
1: No, it wasn't. Um, in fact, one site that you can see that had a robust representation was on the television talk shows of the 80s and 90s, right? Things like Jerry Springer, Ricky Lake, Sally Jesse Raphael.
0: And how were the trans women depicted typically? Yeah,
1: com- and, you know, uh, a, a wonderful scholar, Joshua Gamson, wrote a book called Freaks Talk Back, and they were pretty much paraded around as freaks, right? And what sort of like was worse was that the in-studio audience would often harass the trans women on stage and they would often ask really bad, you know, really offensive questions, the kinds of questions you wouldn't ask anyone, right? And this is something that trans people get all the time. But what's interesting is that at the same time, it still gave them a platform, right? It gave them a platform to speak. It gave them a platform to speak back. It gave them a platform to sort of author um, narratives about their own lives, There was a participant in my study named Jen who she was visiting her grandparents on vacation. She was young, probably 13, 14. And her grandfather was watching The Jerry Springer Show. And on the show were trans women. And her grandfather was making fun of them, unfortunately. And Jen was very much aware of this. However, in her mind, what she was thinking was, these women are so beautiful. Look at them right? I want to be like that. I didn't know this was possible. I didn't know, you know, that I could be a trans woman. And so for her, she was able to sort of look past that negative representation and get something out of the show, right, that was meaningful to her, even though it was deeply problematic and they were treating the women uh, in a sensational manner.
0: You found that with a lot of the women you talked to that in some ways it was empowering to think, "Oh God, there is a trans woman. I'm not alone. Yes. And on the other hand, I can't see this anymore. It's just too demoralizing.
1: Yeah. That was another thing, right? That trans women have a, a, a very complicated relationship with the media. On the one hand, it does affirm that trans identity is possible, that you can do this, that that there's options for you, right? As, and, and it expands the category of woman in a really interesting way. At the same time, Watching the depictions, the routine depictions of trans women get beaten up, be exposed to violence, be seen as freaks, be seen as psychotic, right? These are all the the stereotypes that have emerged throughout history And, and seeing this over and over, and particularly trans women being the victim of violence, right? And a lot of my participants talked about watching something like CSI or Law and Order, where the trans woman is never the detective. She's never the doctor. She, you know, she's never the coroner. She's always either the victim or the person persecuting violence. Uh, And and they said to see this over and over, it really forecloses possibilities for trans women. One of my favorite professors of all time, Neil Postman, used to say, media gives and media takes away. It's the same thing for trans women. It gives them something, uh, but it also takes something away.
0: You know, in writing this book and speaking at length with hundreds of trans women, did you come away thinking that what we want to see in the media is an ordinary experience or something that is more glorified?
1: So I call this the queerly ordinary. It's the final chapter of my book. Uh, And it's something that I think, and it's something actually that my participants wanted me to tell. Uh, and and talk about in the book, right? It's a story they wanted me to tell, which was this, right? Which is, on the one hand, yes, we're queer, we're different, right? Um, we we challenge the gender binary, we live in different ways, um, we sort of, you know, we're a bit non normative. Yes, at the same time, right? Um, we just want to go food shopping. We just want an ordinary everyday life like everyone else. And those two things um, is something was something that I had to sort of resolve in the book, right? The desire to, to be different, to hold on to being queer, and to be like recognized uh, and acknowledged for being trans, but also the desire to see just what they would say like an ordinary trans person living their everyday life, right? And so a lot of my interviews were in the industrial Midwest. So a lot of the women were like, come on. Most of my friends, they're working the line at Ford, right? Like, I want to see a representation of a trans woman who works the line at Ford, who you know goes out for a drink after, um, who has a loving family, you know, and and is accepted, but also struggles in a way, uh, but but is also very confident about being trans, right? Knows who they are, um, and for them, that's what was missing from the landscape, right? Is that we <laughs> we acknowledge the everyday lives of everyone else in the world. Why, why are trans people different, right? They have an everyday life. They have a desire to sort of do the kinds of things that someone like me who's a cisgender person takes for granted. So the question of everyday life is really at the heart of the book.
0: Andre, this has been wonderful. Thank you for talking with me. Oh,
1: my pleasure. It was so fun.
0: Andre Cavalcante is a professor of media studies and women and gender studies at the University of Virginia. His book is Struggling for Ordinary, Media and Transgender Belonging in Everyday Life. Movies are so much more than entertainment. They shape the way we see the world around us, even when we don't realize it. Kimberly Brown is a professor of gender, sexuality, and women's studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. She looks at common stereotypes of black women in movies and what it means for a casual moviegoer to watch film in an anti-racist way. Kimberly, you study anti-racist film analysis, especially the stereotype of black women domestic workers in movies. And what that means for most moviegoers, the casual moviegoer, to watch a film in an anti-racist way. Give me an example of some recent film that we could watch in a more anti-racist way.
2: Well, let me, let me do something a little bit further back. Uh, do you ever remember... Uh, a movie called Crash. Yes. It came out to like a lot of critical acclaim. Crash uh, was sort of like an ensemble film. It was like four different couples, right? Right. So it's set in Los Angeles and... You know, they come from different sort of walks of life. Matt Dillon is a, a police officer. Ryan Phillippe is in it. He's my white boy crush. So, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it builds itself as a, as a, as a movie that talks very honestly about race relations. I use that film in the course primarily because it's a film that students will like. They find it pleasurable. And so, what I find is that it's really difficult sometimes to get people to critique their pleasure because if they critique their pleasure and someone says that their pleasure is problematic, then we internalize that sort of thing and think that our desires are problematic, uh, that our thinking is problematic. And uh in some instances, if that problematic thinking leads us to believe that we're racist, then you're already hitting a wall because once, you know... Once you use that label, then then people spend more time defending uh, the fact that they're not racist and or also defending their right to find pleasure in problematic images. The film pushes us towards a specific reading that equates racism and prejudice. And so you leave the film thinking that uh, racism is a human trait and it's just something that we all do. Uh, that everyone is a little bit racist. So I want my students to think through the extent to which a film is vested in white supremacy, basically. The entire movie is done, it's it's kind of episodic in the sense that it gives you several examples of how people are prejudiced against other um, ethnicities and races. The film starts off with a female officer who is Latina, and she's in a car accident with an Asian woman. And so the first thing that she does is um, uh, bring up stereotypes of Asian drivers, uh, mocks this woman's accent we're not expecting this as a viewer because she's already identified herself as being Latina. So we think that she would have a little bit more uh, racial um, sensitivity, but we find out that she doesn't. And all of the characters in the movie have moments like this. And it makes the casual viewer very comfortable about casual racism. Right.
0: Don't worry about your racism. We've all got it.
2: Exactly. One of the things that Hollywood does a lot, they make very intimate um, portrayals of people's lives uh, that kind of sort of obscure the larger problem with something like racism, which is that it's systemic or institutional. And so we're so focused as viewers on this sort of one-on-one thing that we get into our head that racism is something that we can um, overcome by sort of like just a conversation or uh, racism gets boiled down to like a misunderstanding rather than something larger and more problematic or larger than we can kind of like uh, fix on a one-on-one basis between two Uh, different sets of people.
0: You've looked closely at a couple of films that show Black women domestic workers like The Help and The Secret Life of Bees. Most recently, you've been looking at a horror movie called Ma. Tell me more about Ma. What's the connection?
2: The tie-in between Ma and some of the work that I've done on Black domestic workers comes from the actress in both The Help and in Ma, so Octavia Spencer, plays a domestic worker in Tate Taylor's The Help. But then Tate Taylor also, in 2019, does a horror film called Ma, trying to ride the coattails of, like, Jordan Peele's Get Out, right? And so Ma is um, not a domestic worker. She, I believe, is a veterinarian's assistant or something like that. And she's a Black woman who grew up in the suburbs, and uh, in a predominantly white suburbs. And she had a horrible sort of high school experience, bullied by uh, some of the white kids in the school. And she gets fixated on a group of white teenagers when she's at this point probably in her 30s or 40s. And so she fancies herself as like one of these kids, but then they kind of quickly realize that she's perhaps a little bit off. And so um, they're interesting sort of tie-ins because of how both films are kind of vested in telling a probably uh, a tamer story about race. Um, They're vested in um, white redemption in particular sort of ways. Let me play the
0: trailer and let's listen to it together, okay?
2: Okay. Excuse me, can
0: you buy some booze for my friends and I? Not interested, please. Hell. Woo, there's my girl. This never happened, okay? Thanks again for doing this, ma'am. You guys want to party like rock stars? Follow me.
1: Let's get drunk!
3: The bar is open. What do you think? We don't know this chick. It ain't much, but it's all you. Cool basement. You're free to do whatever you want down here, but nobody go upstairs. This is so
2: sick. Welcome to Ma's. First of all, I am a big time like horror fan. Like I like horror and sci-fi movies. Uh, With Ma, because it was billed as a psychological thriller about race, I was really interested in that. Um, The other reason that I was interested is I'm a person that grew up as uh, a black person in the suburbs. And so you don't get a lot of films depicting um, black women um, or the sort of isolation that black girls and black women face in suburban spaces sometimes or, you know, predominantly white spaces uh, sometimes. So I was interested to see what the film would do with that portrayal. The main character of the film is really uh, a teenager, a white teenage girl named Maggie, and then uh ma is um Sue Ann. And she quickly befriends Maggie's group of friends, buying them liquor, letting them party at the house.
0: What do you make of Octavia Spencer's character in this movie?
2: It's really about how fleshed out the character is, right? So I'm not really vested in her having to be like a good person. But if you're going to be a villain, you know, let let the person be a villain, right? Sue Ann is is probably taking out her frustrations from high school on these white kids uh, to try to get back at their parents, right? But it's really about, like, the idea that comes across in the film is that these kids are not responsible for the sins, the racist sins of their white parents. Um, And then Sue Ann is punished at the end.
0: Are there any movies that you think get the betrayal? Of black characters, right?
2: To me, it's not a question about getting something right. It's about, like, what kind of stories is Hollywood vested in actually telling? There was a movie recently, Best of Enemies, that came out in 2019. And it's based on a book called Best of Enemies Race and Redemption in the New South. And it focuses on, like, the rivalry between Ann Atwater and then. Um, a Ku Klux Klan leader, C.P. Ellis. You have to think about what was happening in 2019. Why is it important to show a film in 2019 about two people, a person who is a civil rights activist and black, and then a person who's a Ku Klux Klan leader and white uh, forming some unusual friendship? Uh, So in 2019, we're at a moment in history where, you know, we're dealing again with like race relations being extremely fraught. To me, on some level, that seems to be a bit of a betrayal. Uh, On some level, to have a movie like that, you're trying to kind of humanize the Klan. And to humanize the Klan, I don't know how that's... um, Helpful if you're a black person, particularly a black person who might be terrorized by the Klan. Um, so I'm not in doubt that people who are in the Klan are human, but they're they're um not recognizing my sort of humanity. So again, what you see is like Hollywood flattening out a larger conversation about racism and having it kind of fix itself with this sort of intimate conversation and friendship forming between these two people.
0: Kimberly Brown is a professor of gender, sexuality, and women's studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. Her forthcoming project is titled Through Ebony Eyes, a Black feminist and ethical praxis of viewing contemporary Film." Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quanz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.